Hey friend, this is Big Dog. I mean to say, this is KUHSLP 102.5 FM in Hot Springs. Up next, Beast and Dragons discussing politics when the Beast and Dragon are adored. With your very own host, Big Dog Ethan, featuring a guest that we're going to be interviewing on here, the one and only Dan Wickfield! Hey friend, this is Big Dog Ethan. You're listening to KUHSLP 102.5 FM in Hot Springs. And this show is none other than Beast and Dragons discussing politics when the Beast and Dragon are adored. Welcome to the apocalypse, friend. So, I am honored to have Dan Whitfield here today. He's coming uh, in through our Twitter space. Dan, how are you doing? I'm well, Ethan. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. Uh, my 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 absolute pleasure. So uh, yeah, Whitman is an Arkansas candidate for the 2022 U.S. Senator race. Uh, his campaign is 100% grassroots funded, no corporate funding. Uh, I have him in the studio today to ask him about his policies and strategies he plans uh, to use in getting those policies implemented. So uh, Dan, without any further ado, I think we should just uh, get right into it. Um, so of course, um, I, I ran, I, I got to run in, I met you at, um, the Medicare for all protest in Little Rock, um, uh, yesterday. And, um, one thing that I found was, that was very interesting whenever you were, you were handing out, you know, those pamphlets, um, you had it, had the policy, uh, listed as healthcare for all. Um, why not Medicare for all? Is there, is there a difference between the two? Um, really there's no difference between the two. The problem with the wording of Medicare for all is it's very deceiving on what healthcare for all truly is. Uh, there are a lot of people I talk to that are on Medicare and they're like, well, this is terrible. I have to pay extra money and supplements and I still don't get good care. It doesn't cover my vision, uh, you know, my dental, anything like that. Well, healthcare for all does cover all of those things and it doesn't cost anything additional. So I've been, you know, going with the term healthcare for all. It's the same basic thing, and we can get into about what it is and how we're going to pay for it here in just a few minutes. Um, but it's really important that when we're talking to people about a universal healthcare system, we start with something where they aren't going to automatically shut you out. They're actually going to be interested in what you have to say and give you that time of day to listen to you. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, uh, do you think, um, do you, so I know you're going to be, um, you know, if you're going to be heading into, uh, um, well, I guess now I just realized, I guess that's, I guess I've been thinking, I, I guess I originally I was worried about, I was thinking that maybe that might cause some conflict with, um, with the Medicare for all bill that's been already proposed, but I just realized, I guess you're going to be going to the Senate. And I don't think there's a, I don't think there is a universal health care bill that's been proposed in the Senate. Am I not mistaken on that? I believe you're correct. Uh, at this moment, we're really trying to get Medicare for all through the House. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, there are just too many corporate Democrats that are taking money from the health and pharmaceutical industry to help push it through. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, yeah, so I did want to hop back, though, because you did mention about getting into how we're going to fund it. And that, that is a question I think a lot of people uh, bring up whenever we whenever uh, discussing a policy like that. How do you intend to fund uh, health care for all? Yeah, absolutely. So... The, that's the biggest pushback I get, of course. Um, how are we going to pay for it? Well, we are going to pay for it. They're correct. Nothing is free. But here's how we're going to pay for it. So currently, if you make less than $29,000 for your household income, it's not going to cost you anything. It'll be similar to Medicaid, except it's going to be um, more fully expansive. It's going to cover things like you know vision, dental, hearing. Um, it will also include a $200 a year prescription drug cost cap. So if you fill your first prescription in January and say, you know, you're a type 1 diabetic and it's over $200, well, you would pay your $200 and for the rest of the year, your medications are at no cost to you. So now, if you're making more than $29,000 a year, I'll go ahead and use Arkansas as my example as we're here in Arkansas. Uh, the average household income last year was $48,000. So you would take 48000 subtract 29000 because it's 4% after 29000 which would leave you with $19,000. And 4% of that is about 
$760 a year or $63 a month. So that's a bunch of numbers. <laughs> um, it, everything I'm saying it is legit. This was a study performed by Yale University. Uh, but what it means is it means the average household in Arkansas, the average family, is only going to have to pay $63 a month to insure their entire family for medical, dental, vision, hearing, with no premiums, deductibles, or co-pays. And what, what are the cost differences between our current system and healthcare for all, if, um, if you had to like give like an average um, for the cost difference for our current system? So I, I was watching, of course, all of the different debates last year when we were doing the 2020 elections. And when I was watching Republicans use the same point over and over, unfortunately, the Democrats just they didn't understand health care for all enough to be able to respond. But the question would always come down to, well, Medicare for all is going to cost us 30 trillion dollars over 10 years. How you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to pay for it? But the fact is, is our current private health system is going to cost over 38 trillion dollars over the next 10 years. So it's actually going to save us money. Uh, I mean, the financial savings will be there for Americans. The financial savings will be there for employers. And it's just really going to help all the way around. So we have to acknowledge. Uh-huh. I was, I was going to say, like, so um, uh, doing the math and that you'd be um, uh, this plan that you're saying this plan would save us $8 trillion then, correct? Yeah, it would save us trillions of dollars. Okay. At the same time, every single American would be insured and no American would die because they cannot afford their prescriptions. And what's really important to understand for every single person in our country, we are the only modernized nation in the entire world. 38 modernized nations, 37 of them have a universal health system, and we are the only one that does not. We also have to realize and understand and accept that the number one cause of bankruptcy in America is medical debt. 60% of all bankruptcies in our country are from medical bills. And 70% of those bankruptcies filed, the Americans, they, they have health insurance. They're going to work. They're paying high premiums, high deductibles, high copays. They're doing everything right. And then they get sick and they lose everything. And that's just unacceptable. We know what the number one problem in America is. And now we have to find a solution. And I believe healthcare for all of us that solution. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, the next one that I want to ask you, uh, the next like policy I want to ask you about, I found this really interesting because I, I was looking on your webpage um, and, and you had a lot to say about climate change. Um, but uh, what, what policies do you plan to, um, uh, plan to enact about climate change or try to work on uh, about climate change? So, I mean, climate change, it is the, you know, biggest threat that we will ever face as a species. We have to understand that. That's what scientists are telling us, despite what your local politician who got a degree in political science believes, we have to listen to scientists when it comes to climate change. We can see all around us that our climate is changing. As we look at historic temperatures in Portland, Oregon, that are higher than you know the highest temperature ever recorded in austin texas Mm. when we look at the giant wildfires that took place in australia last year that led to over a billion with that's with a b animals dying i mean koala bears have like straight lost their natural environment we're looking at flooding historic flooding all over the country we even had a series of dams break up in north america or uh, I believe it was Michigan, Um, in that area, we had a series of dams that were breached last year, and they had to evacuate an entire city. Hmm. These are are climate catastrophes, and unfortunately, they're going to continue to get worse as it gets hotter and hotter. So some of the plans that I have in place um, that I think are really necessary at this point is, of course, switching to renewable energies. This isn't something that we can afford to do by 2050. This isn't something we can afford to do by 2040. This is something we have to do within the next decade. Hmm. Otherwise, there's just no going back. It's going to be a different world that our children grow up in than the one that we did. Okay. By switching to renewables, uh-huh. 
Uh, sorry, no, I, I cut you off. You, you. Sorry, I, and I can get long-winded, man. No, uh, I love I that's. Really I love long-winded. That that's the be- yeah. Lo- uh, long-winded is uh, always great for the radio. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So, um, you know, of course, we want to switch to renewables. Um, solar power is. I mean, just. That, that's going to be what we rely on a lot in rural areas. And if I may so throw in, can, sorry, if I may throw in, actually, this radio station is also solar powered, by the way. Um, so uh, that, wow. that, yeah, so yeah, that, yeah, we, we definitely, uh, we're, I, I, I can say that we're, we're, we're definitely in, uh, we, we like, uh, we like our, uh, we like our renewable energy here as well. <laughs> yeah, that's great, man. I mean, we, we need to get to the point where every single home and business in America has solar energy on top. It's a free source of energy that we can use. And I understand a lot of people are going to be concerned as we start to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy that, oh, what about all the jobs lost? Well, let me fill you in. I worked in the oil field for two years. After high school, I went to Louisiana and I worked on oil rigs. I was an instrumentation technician. And I'll, I'll tell you this, these jobs out there, they aren't very good jobs. They pay all right, but they're dangerous. The oil companies, the energy companies, the, uh, the, the tool pushers, all these contracting companies, they just don't offer good benefits. And it's just an unsafe work environment. I remember working over, you know, a big giant tank full of biodiesel fuel. I mean, it's basically mud, <laughs> mud with gas inside of it. Uh, for hours working on an instrument and there's no respirators there's no breathers uh, who knows you know what kind of cancers I've submitted myself to uh, but the fact is a lot of these fossil fuel jobs they're underpaid they're overworked they don't have the quality benefits that you would think they have and they're not safe well fortunately as we are transitioning into a clean energy era we will be creating new jobs, better paying jobs, jobs with good benefits, and jobs that are safe. And, and what would these, uh, what would the job, what would these new jobs be looking like then? So we would have to have jobs, of course, creating all of the materials that we would need. We would have jobs installing the different systems to uh, provide energy um, all the way from the panels to absorb the heat from the sun and then the batteries to store the energy for of course when it's nighttime yes uh, solar panels don't work at night and that doesn't mean that at night you lose your energy i know some politicians believe that um (laughs) so and then you would also have jobs maintaining the systems because you would have to have a grid and you would have to have you know a lot of manpower making sure that if something breaks it's fixed and it's working properly so there would be a lot of good jobs out there i mean this is just solar we haven't even gotten to wind turbines or to uh, bladeless turbines you know these you have to build them you have to maintain them these are all good quality jobs that you would be able to get the certifications to do this through vocational training you wouldn't have to have a bachelor's degree to be able to maintain one of these systems so they're good high paying low education jobs okay um and how does this because uh one uh, one policy that's always floated i think whenever we, whenever people talk about climate change is green new deal i mean is this is this essentially are, are you is this um essentially like the green new is essentially are these ideas um like very similar to the green new deal or actually is the green new deals what you're um uh, voicing support for yeah, I do support the Green New Deal, and I understand some people are like, well, that includes things that don't have to do with the climate, like infrastructure. Well, I think we're starting to see that infrastructure is completely relevant when we're talking to the climate. Um, I mean, we have insulation melting off utility poles in the West Coast, on the West Coast that are causing power outages and fires. We have bridges that are weakening due to the massive amounts of heat in the, inner, in the areas that they are located in. Infrastructure is climate change. I mean, it, 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 it directly correlates with it. And if we cannot protect ourselves by strengthening our dams and our levees and our waterways, we are going to have, a, I mean, just it's, it's, un, 
you really can't predict the amount of loss of life and money that will be incurred because of climate change. And of course, you know, the Green New Deal does also include a federal jobs guarantee, which some people don't agree with, but I think it's very important that we have a federal jobs guarantee. If somebody wants to work who's not currently working, they should have the opportunity to get a job that pays well. Um, so you're bringing up something that something that I, I've actually never heard of before. What so what is what is the federal jobs guarantee? The federal jobs guarantee is going to be a program where it's going to be similar to like a, you know the conservation corps used to be, where they would have a set minimum wage, which also you know brings us up to a livable wage, um, where pretty much anybody willing to work can get a job. Where when you look at the biggest growth in our country, of course, was back after World War II. And we put people to work building schools, post offices, parks, federal parks, all these different areas of work where we needed labor, but we didn't have the jobs available to do any of that work. So I know they're talking about a climate, is it a climate conservation corps uh, or something similar to that now as well where we can offer these jobs where people will be making $15 an hour to go out to rebuild new parks, to, uh, you know, not necessarily rebuild old schools, but to update schools and bring schools to where they should be. Because we shouldn't have a single school in our country where children are sweating during the summer because the AC is not working or where they're wearing two jackets in class in the winter because the heater is not working. Hmm. These are all issues that a federal jobs guarantee can help to address okay uh, thank you for that um and again this is a uh, kuhs lp 102.5 fm in hot springs uh, the show is beasts and dragons discussing politics when the beasts and dragon are adored this is big dog ethan uh i have uh dan uh whitfield on the air here where uh i'm interviewing um uh, dan whitfield is uh letting us know about his policies for his campaign um uh, which uh he's running a campaign for uh u.s senate in 2022 so um, uh, right now he is, uh, uh just, uh, he's been uh, talking about, uh, climate change, uh, his policies on climate change. And, uh, next, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, one that's, uh, I think, uh, on, on the minds of especially a lot of younger folks, um, cannabis. Um, so you, uh, on the pamphlets that you were handing out at, uh, the protest on, uh, uh the Medicare for all protest on Saturday, um, one of the things you listed on there was uh, um, you support federally decriminalizing cannabis and nationally expunging cannabis convictions. Um, you, uh, I'm quoting from your uh, uh, from your pamphlet here. Uh, it will better the lives of countless Americans. The disastrous war on drugs has failed America, and it's time we put an end to it in order to give Americans the opportunity to heal. Um, uh, that's what it says on your on your pamphlet. Now, um, yeah. a couple of things I had about that. So it, you know. Um, uh, I, whenever people talk about pardoning of of, uh, of marijuana, um, you know, pardoning of, of uh, cannabis convictions, um, usually I hear the, the, the distinction nonviolent ones, or that's at least what I've heard a lot. Um, do you do you also support the expunging of, of violent um, cannabis crimes as well, or or is it implied that you only support the uh, nonviolent, um, like the uh, the expunging of nonviolent cannabis crimes? So I think when people like, you know, bring in the whole nonviolent cannabis crimes, they're just appealing to a base trying to get their attention. But realistically, if you are arrested and you have a cannabis charge and you're arrested for any kind of violent charge, you're not being arrested for one charge. <laughs> if you shoot somebody and, you know, you're selling drugs and you shoot somebody, well, the cannabis conviction is one part of it. But there are other crimes that you are being charged with as well. And absolutely, no, you should not um, expunge those other related crimes. But the cannabis conviction part of it would be expunged. We have to be careful when working on legislation about unintended consequences. And when you start having uh, exceptions like nonviolent cannabis crimes, then you're not sure what kind of unique situation a person can be in where they were charged with, say, a violent crime because maybe they had a, you know, a seat or a stem on the floorboard of their car and the top 
cop, you know, the officer told them to get out of their car and they opened the door and it hit the officer. And now you have a violent cannabis conviction, even though it was unintentional. It's just really hard because there's always going to be unintended consequences when it comes to legislation. Gotcha. And there's always unique circumstances. Mm. But, yeah, I do support the federal decriminalization of cannabis and nationally expunging cannabis convictions. And I think that it's extremely important because we have people that are serving life sentences in prison for doing the same exact thing that a person can put a suit on and do legally in a different state. So just from the 14th Amendment with the Equal Protection Clause, we really need to relook at the way that we have criminalized cannabis. I mean, the whole racist history of criminalizing cannabis uh, with back in Reefer Madness, the Reefer Madness era was we knew that black Americans, that was their recreational drug of choice. And they were looking to lock the people up for being minorities. And that's how they chose to do it. No different than what we did historically back when Chinese migrants were coming to our country and they wanted to stop Chinese migration. What did they do? They made opium illegal because that was their recreational drug of choice. So there is a racist background to the war on drugs. And we need to make sure that we are ending these different programs that have been used to oppress the people. I mean, cannabis is a plant. <laughs> it, yes, it is a mind altering plant, but there's, we live in this culture, this society where people are brought up to believe that it's okay to go and work a 15 hour day, come home, drink a bunch of beers. And you know, what does that lead to? It leads to a lot of domestic violence issues it leads to a lot of, uh, you know, child abuse issues. Whereas if you were to go work 15 hours a day, or if, you know, work a day at 15 hours, and you come home and you smoke a joint, well, it, it's frowned upon in society, but the likelihood of domestic violence and child abuse is significantly lower. Mm. Okay. Wow. And, um, uh, excuse me there. Sorry. I'm uh, trying to, there's a little bit of static in my headset there. Um, so we, I noticed we've been talking a lot about uh, decriminalizing cannabis. That's actually what it says on the on your on your uh, pamphlet that you were handing out. But I just realized now you're saying decriminalizing. Um, do you also support um, the legalization, uh, taxation, regulation of of weed? Maybe maybe you did already say that, and I just missed that. But I wanted to make sure I got that. Uh, I wanted to make sure I uh, yeah. specified that. <laughs> it's a common question I get because I very I very clearly state that I support the decriminalization. Um, and I do not use the word legalization. So I believe that it's the federal government's job to decriminalize. And I think that it should be up to states and the voters in each state to vote on whether or not they want it legalized and in which way. Um, I don't think the government should have that big of an overreach on the states because every state is unique and the people in every state are different. Now, Personally, uh, like myself, Dan Whitfield, do I support the legalization of cannabis? Yeah, I do. I've seen how it changes lives and how it helps especially veterans cope with things like PTSD. I've seen how it helps people get off of opioids. You know, they've been taking Oxy there for the last four or five years and they can't function without it. And then they've gotten a prescription for cannabis and they've been able to weed themselves off of the you know, pharmaceuticals little drip line that they have going. Hmm. I'd see the benefits of it, absolutely, and I support it 100% personally. Okay, and... But when it comes to decriminalization, uh, sorry, I... No, you're good. A little bit of time. I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate it a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's gonna be really important because cannabis is federally illegal, and by it being federally illegal, it prevents doctors at the VA from being able to prescribe cannabis to veterans, um, you know, people who went overseas and gave, you know, basically everything but their life who've come back and been treated like crap. And then they go to the VA and they get set on this 10, 15, 20 pill regiment that's basically slowly killing them because they can't get a prescription for cannabis. Um, so that's one important way that the decriminalization will help the VA properly uh, medicate veterans and give them that option, that opportunity to do something that is less harmful to their bodies. It's also important to understand that banks are federally insured. 
So any bank with FDIC insurance cannot do business even with a legal cannabis business in a state like Colorado, California, Washington, or one of the other dozen plus states that are legal. These businesses can't do business with banks, and that's a big problem. So federally decriminalizing will also allow them to start working with these banks. And then we have the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA. Unfortunately, this program has been used as a mafia-type program to go into legal businesses who are doing nothing wrong. They're following all of their state laws. They're doing everything right. The DEA can come into one of these legal businesses, handcuff everybody, take them outside, go back in, take all of their assets, make sure there's no product left in their store, and then they will go back out, let everyone go, and say, you all have a nice day. We'll see you next month. And they have made a racketeering scam out of it. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. But again, federally decriminalizing will protect our businesses in that way as well. Okay. And um, so um, you were mentioning a lot about how, about how cannabis you know, has, has helped a lot of veterans um, with, with PTSD. And recently we've been seeing, um, we've been seeing studies showing that uh, MDMA um, actually also helps, um, uh, also could potentially be an effective treatment for PTSD. Um, so I bring that up because I, I, I think, um, you know, you've mentioned, you know, it's, it sounds like, you know, this, uh, the, 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 um, these perceived benefits uh, of weed really uh, uh, seem to, um, uh, seem to be one uh, big part of your case for cannabis. So what I wanted to ask was, um, because, you know, you, you seem to, you seem to place a focus on, on the medicinal properties of cannabis, um, because other illegal substances also have, um, you know, medicinal properties or potential medicinal uh, medicinal properties. Um, would you be in support of legalizing or decriminalizing, um, legalizing, uh, regulating and taxing uh, other drugs as well? So um, I'm not completely educated when it comes to the MDMA. I've read an article here or there. Um, of course, it would be another option, another alternative. And I mean, originally, MDMA was actually prescribed back in the 30s as a marriage drug from counselors <laughs> um, oh. because it would help, uh, you know, uh, couples regain their intimate relationships that they were no longer able to have. Um, you know, we do have to be exploring other options. I think cannabis is an important option because it's a natural option. But also, doctors have been experimenting with psilocybin as well to treat depression and PTSD, and they've had positive results. I think I had read somewhere that if a person is dosed with psilocybin once every six months, their life overall is, you know, they're deemed happier. I mean, <laughs> there, there are a lot of holistic, a lot of natural uh, drugs that people have been using, that humans, our species, has been using for thousands and thousands and thousands of years that are unfortunately at this point illegal because our government deems these substances as not safe. Uh, but what we really have to be focused on is why was this deemed not safe? I think a lot of the problem comes back into money and politics because Every single veteran that is prescribed cannabis and is no longer prescribed 15 or 20 pharmaceutical pills, that costs the pharmaceutical industry money. Every patient that, you know, stops taking a pain, pain regiment medicine um, because of cannabis, that's money that the pharmaceutical company has lost. These pills keeping people sick and making them sick, that's money that the health industry has lost. That's why the health and pharmaceutical industries put so much money, so much money into political politicians uh, and candidates' pockets to help keep these things illegal and why these are the guys really fighting against legalization. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you for that. And... Um, uh, you know, you, you've talked a lot about, uh, or you've talked, you know, you were just talking about how, you know, we, we see a lot of, you know, you're talking about how you see, um, uh, wealthy politicians, um, taking money from, uh, uh, from, you know, healthcare, uh, from, you know, uh, big donors like healthcare providers, health insurance companies, all that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. 
how would you, I guess, want to use that to uh, transition to uh, another um, another thing that you mentioned up on this on this pamphlet, um, trying to lower, uh, trying to raise taxes on the wealthy and lower taxes for working citizens, um, specifically on taxing the wealthy. How much would you tax the wealthy, and what specific policies would you fight for in order to uh, in order to um, increase taxes on the wealthy? So does it actually say um, increasing taxes on the wealthy or enforcing taxes on the wealthy? Um, oh, yes, enforcing taxation on the billionaires. You're right. Thank you for that. I misread that. Awesome. <laughs> no problem. It's very important that we, uh, you know, differentiate between the two. Yes, so thank you. <laughs> one of the, the biggest problems right now is the working class is just covering this huge portion of our taxes that is just creating an, an enormous burden over the working class. We have people who are going, they're, they're doing everything right, you know, they're contributing to society, they're working 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week, they're helping make our world a better place, but then they get their paycheck at the end of the month, and if you're a single male in America, it could be 35% less than what you actually made because you're being taxed. Uh, many working families are paying between 15 to 20 to 25 percent of their incomes in taxes. Now, of course, uh, you know, depending on whether uh, you agree with Stephanie Kelton and modern monetary theory, uh, taxes do have a purpose, but we have to make sure that we're not overburdening people's taxes. At the same time as the working class paying these huge percentages of our incomes and in taxes, we have billionaires and corporations that are paying nearly nothing at all. So what I really want to see done is closing legal tax evasion loopholes. A lot of these legal tax evasion loopholes were created by legislators that have taken money from these same special interests. You'll have billionaires that donate to candidate A and candidate B and candidate C, and you'll have corporations that donate to the same candidates and now candidate A, B, and C, in return for taking monetary contributions, they're going to vote on legislation to help those same billionaires and corporations evade taxes. That's how we have you know, things like Donald Trump paying $750 last year in taxes, which is less than nearly every single working class American. That's how you have companies like Netflix and Amazon that pays $0 in taxes. I mean, Netflix paid less. If you have a subscription for Netflix, you paid Netflix more last year than they paid in federal taxes. How crazy is that? And at the same time, when you look at companies like Amazon who avoid taxation, not only did they avoid taxation, but they received over $400 million in subsidies out of our pockets. I mean, these are huge issues that are finally starting to be talked about. This isn't a new problem. This is a problem that's been happening for decades. But fortunately, we have social media. We have this information, these mini supercomputers on our fingertips uh, when we pick our phones up now that a lot of people are starting to understand and see what's going on. Um, I'm going to use this opportunity to plug two websites. Um, these are two websites that helped wake me up. Um, I, I grew up a conservative Republican. I was a registered Republican for 12 years for most of my life before I woke up to the corruption in the government and started to see money in politics. And these two websites helped me do that. The first one I'm going to tell you is opensecrets.org. Mm -hmm. If you go to opensecrets.org, you can type in a politician's name and you can actually see where their money's coming from. It even allows you to switch it down by ideological group or industry. So spend some time there, put in your representatives' names, see where their money's coming from. After you do that, go to votesmart.org, put in that same politician's name, and now you can see their entire career's voting history. So now you can put together yourself. Don't believe me. I'm just words coming out of my mouth. It, it means nothing to you. Do this yourself and look at how your politician is taking money from said special interest and then voting to benefit that special interest while it hurts you and your family. Hmm. All right. And yeah, th and thank you uh, for those sources. I I've heard of, I so I myself heard of Open Secrets. Um, I not heard of Vote Smart, so I, I, may, uh, I may go check that out. 
Um, and I also wanted to so um, so I thought it was interesting that you made that distinct that you made the distinction um, uh, between uh, uh, between taxing the wealthy and and uh, you know re and really just uh, getting rid of these legal loopholes. So really, um, in, in order to I guess make sure that you know billionaires in order to ensure that billionaires are paying uh, what, what you see as their fair share, um, uh, you would you would be enacting policies to get rid of legal loopholes that allow for such um, small taxes to be paid in the first place. Is that, am I correct in that? Yes, you are correct. Okay. Um, the, the last, uh, so the, um, actually I, I had one other thing I wanted to ask, well, two other things I wanted to ask you about. The first one was, um, uh, increasing federal funding to our schools and raising teacher salaries. So that's another one which I my my initial question is, how do you how do you plan to pay for that? Absolutely. So realistically, if you look at the way that we finance our educational system right now, our schools are only getting about ten percent of their funding from the federal government. The other ninety percent of their funding is coming from state programs and local community taxes. So what I would really like to see done is increasing the federal funding to schools because, I mean, education is the foundation of everything in our society. If we are not setting our children up for success, then we are setting them up for failure. Now, how are we going to pay for it? That is the question that we always get. So let me run a little bit into MMT without boring you all too much. Um, if you want to educate yourselves on how our current fiscal policy works in the age of a fiat currency backed by a sovereign issuer, um, you know, of course, check out Stephanie Kelton. She wrote a book, uh, The Deficit Myth, which can really help you guys out. Unfortunately, the majority of the people in our legislative body who are determining how federal funding is going to be spent were educated back when we still had the gold standard. They don't understand what it is like to be an issuer. They only understand what it is like to be a receiver, which is why you have congressmen trying to balance our budget like a household would. But there's a difference. Households receive money from the federal government, who is the issuer. The government can never go bankrupt. The government could, you know, uh, fund programs A, B, and C, and even if it created a deficit, if it created red ink, that would bring black ink into the private sector, into our pockets. So at the end of each year, technically, our government could zero out the debt, and it would not even cause inflation. Now... Hmm. How are we going to pay for it? All right. This is what most politicians are going to say because, um, you know, constituents don't necessarily, they're not educated in modern money theory uh, and the difference between a, a gold standard and fiat currency. So, you know what? Let's go about it this way. We're going to reallocate wasteful spending. We're going to look at wasteful spending and find money that is being put into high-ranking government officials pockets into billionaires and corporations pockets and instead of it going into people's pockets we're going to put that money back into our society so if you look at say the military budget the military budget they just increased our military budget the other day by 25 billion dollars for next year 25 billion dollars more so let's see um the f-35 project it is a failed project there's no debating this it's a failed project we spent over 1.3 trillion dollars on this failed project to end hunger in the entire country of america you could end hunger in america for 25 billion dollars a year so what we just increased the military budget for next year we could have ended hunger in our country not one more child going to bed with a hungry stomach and it, you know looking specifically here at arkansas we have some of the highest child poverty rates out of the 500,000 people in Arkansas that are food insecure 150,000 of those are children 25% of the children in Arkansas go to bed with hungry stomachs and are food insecure because because why policy decisions look at Governor Asa Hutchinson he's touting oh we've got 980 million dollars in our budget surplus we're doing so good over here in Arkansas well fact is for 240 million for a quarter 
of our surplus, he could have ended all of hunger in Arkansas. Not one more hungry person, not one more hungry child for a quarter of the surplus. But what are they going to do instead? They're going to use that surplus to enact a tax cut for the rich, the people who are putting money into our um, state officials' pockets who are doing what? They're voting to help these rich people keep their money. I mean, sorry, I can get into it. The corruption politics is really what motivated me to get into politics, to step in, to be loud, and to make sure that if we're going to be voting for these corrupt criminal politicians, then we are at least going to know what we're voting for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, sorry. I, no, you're, um, no, thank, I mean, uh, yes, thank, that was actually another thing I was going to ask you about anyway, so thank you for speaking a little bit on that. Um, but yeah, um, but so what, what you're saying is that, um, what you're saying is that uh, you would cut military spending in order to fund, um, in order to increase federal funding for schools and, and to pay teachers more. Is, is that correct? And when it goes from cutting military spending, what we really need to do is first we need to audit military spending. One of the problems with the military budget is if there is going to be a surplus at the end of the year, the military will find a way to spend it so that they can increase their budget for next year. Whether that's $20,000 toilet seats or $10,000 O-rings, they will find a way to meet that budget to make sure they do not have a surplus, and that is a problem. There's a lot of wasteful spending. The majority of our military budget isn't going into soldiers' pockets. It's going into deep contractors' pockets, into ex-generals and ex-legislators and lobbyists' pockets. That's a problem. Immediately, when we look at that 700 and not $15 billion anymore, uh, when we look at that $740 billion we're about to give them next year, that blank check, well, immediately 40% of that military budget is going to be blacked out towards classified operations. That means over $300 billion will be 100% completely unaccounted for. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's a lot of wasteful spending. And if we can identify where the fat is, then we can trim the fat without having to worry about lowering the actual ability of our defenses and to protect ourselves without, of course, lowering soldiers' pay, things like that. We need to trim the fat and reallocate the fat to programs that are going to benefit our society and not just the wealthiest one-tenth of one percent of Americans. Uh, speaking on uh, policies that, that, um, that you think would uh, benefit, um, you know, benefit working-class citizens, um, I've noticed, uh, I, I know something that I, I myself have never heard of before, and so I wanted to ask you about it. Um, uh, bringing renters' rights to Arkansas. I saw this on your website last night. Um, yeah. uh, could, you, uh, uh, could, you, could you describe what, what, uh, what the issue is right now with, uh, with renters' rights in Arkansas? Absolutely. So the first thing I want to make clear is that Arkansas is the only state in the union, the only state in America that does not have renters' rights. All other 49 states have renters' rights. Ours does not. And what I mean by that is, I mean, if you want to go and rent a dwelling to live in, the landlord does not have to make sure it is habitable for the tenant. So if it is, let's say like last December, negative 10 degrees outside, and you're renting a house, and the heater goes out, all right, what are you going to do? So heater's out, it's now like 20, 30 degrees inside your house that you're paying your rent on, and you call up the landlord, you're like, hey, bro, the heater's not working, I need you to get to come out here and fix this, I've got an infant. And you know what? They don't have to. They can be like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll get, we'll get right on that. So a month goes by, and your heater's not fixed. That's yeah, a little bit warmer, but it's still like 35 degrees in your house. And you're like, you know what? This dude didn't come out and fix my heater, so I'm not going to pay rent this month. Well, Arkansas is the only state where not paying rent is a criminal offense. So now you have to worry about going to jail because you didn't pay your rent because your dwelling isn't habitable. And I'm not just making up scenarios. I've had people tell me these just horrifying stories. It is insane. We have out-of-state investors who will come into Arkansas They'll purchase a block of buildings, they'll purchase an apartment complex, and they will not fix it up. They will immediately raise the rent. And then, you know, I've got pictures coming to me of people living in apartment complexes with rats running through the hallways, 
with black mold and tiles falling from the ceiling, with roaches crawling up their walls. And there's nothing they can do about it with, you know, they can't even get hot water. They turn their water on and the water is yellow. They're having to put water into a pot and boil their water before they drink it or bathe in it. These are real issues that our Kansans are facing that not enough people are talking about. We did try to get a renter's rights bill passed last year, and immediately the GOP, who's taken tons of money from realtors and investors, went through and just watered it all the way down and took a lot of the good substance out of it. And what what, so, what would what would be some of the good substance? Um, what's some of the good substance in that bill that you would that you would fight for um, if you were elected? Well, number one, I would fight to make sure that every do- every single person's dwelling is habitable. That every dwelling has warm water, has or has hot water, has cold water, has heat, AC. That there's no asbestos in the building. Which, yes, it will cost money to get asbestos out, but we cannot be allowing children to grow up in these cancer homes. Um, and, you know, just common sense stuff. Stuff that if you were anywhere else in the world, we'd be like, well, yeah, of course. But those, you know, these are things that aren't happening in Arkansas. We have to make sure dwellings are habitable. And as your United States Senator, I would submit federal legislation bringing Arkansas hand in hand with the other 49 states that have decided to put human rights before a few people's profits. Okay, uh, thank you for that. Um, this is KUHS LP 102.5 FM in Hot Springs. Uh, you're listening to the Beast and Dragon show. We're uh, uh, discussing politics when the Beast and Dragon are adored. Um, I'm Big Dog Ethan, and I have Dan Whitfield on the air with me. Uh, he is running for uh, he's running for uh, he's running for U.S. Senator in 2022 uh, out of Arkansas. Um, uh, he was just talking about um, uh, his his stances on renters' rights in Arkansas. Um, so, Dan, um, we are coming. Uh, we're almost coming close to ten o'clock, and I would like to take some time to share some music with listeners for the last part uh, for the second half of the show. Um, so, I wanted to leave you with um, with one last question, and it's a question. Um, I'll try to state it as objectively as I can, though. Admittedly, I, I might be a little bit. Um, I'll need to phrase it a little bit carefully here. Um, so, we. Um, so the, uh, the left, um, I think last year saw a lot of disappointments. Not only did Bernie Sanders, uh, lose, um, you know, not only did Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, you know, lose that, lose that primary election, uh, after seeing some promising signs that he might've uh, been able to, uh, 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 to take, uh, uh, you know, take, get the democratic nomination. Um, then on top of that, we also saw, um, current people who are in the squad, people like AOC, um, and, uh, you know, uh, Cory Bush and others, um, you know, the left felt like the left felt like they kind of stopped, um, really fighting, playing hardball, um, in the, they felt betrayed. Yes. And, um, uh, so I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is we, I, I, I think a lot of leftists have been burned and I think a lot of your, it seems like I would, uh, uh, would you say that your policies uh, speak to uh, most of your policies speak to um, uh, the independent left? So I, I smell what you're stepping in, Ethan. Um, and you know what? It is a big problem. Mm-hmm. The problem with a lot of legislators and with our political system is immediately when someone gets elected, they just got a new job. And what's the first thing they think to do? Well, now I've got to keep my job. How am I going to keep my job? So they start pandering to the base. 86% of the time, the candidate with more money wins. So they know they need to raise money. So they start raising funds. They start looking for money. They start selling themselves out is unfortunately what happens. They sell themselves out to keep their job, to continue their political career. And I have protected myself from that scenario. By number one, I will beat Senator John Bozeman next year. I'm very confident that we will win. His disapproval ratings high, his approval ratings low. And the people of Arkansas, being nearly the poorest state in the country with the lowest health, you know, nearly the lowest health care and educational systems, people are ready for change here. They're ready for good change that's going to bring money into the pockets of our kids and families. That's going to boost our state from being the economic worst to hopefully being um, being able to compete with the economic best in our state, in our country. So. How have I protected myself? Well, number one, when I do beat John Bozeman next year, I will not have a re-election campaign. 
in 2028. I will not be trying to ask you for money to spend your money to convince you that I'm doing a good job. My name will be on the ballot, and if I'm doing a good job, people will vote for me, and if I'm not, then they will not. It's very simple. So I won't be spending half of my time asking people for money and wasting your time on your dollar not working for you. I've made a few pledges. I have pledged, I believe, in term limits. I think 12 years is enough time in politics. I believe a person in politics should be a working member of society, get elected to serve with honor and integrity, and then return to being a working member of society. That's the way our founding fathers designed our government. I have signed a pledge to hold 12 town halls per year here in Arkansas. So I will be coming back to the state and listening to my constituents, whether they want to boo me off this stage and tell me I'm doing terrible and this is what they want me to do instead, or whether they tell me I'm doing a great job. That's irrelevant. I will be listening to our Kansans. I've also, uh, I will be submitting up to 12 bills per year created by our Kansans. Bills that will be created here in Arkansas by regular working class people and submitting them to Congress to help extend the voices of our Kansans into the legislative process. I've made a lot of really radical pledges that I hope one day people will catch on and be like, this isn't a radical idea. This is what's right. This is the way it should be. So I protected myself from that. And what I'm going to leave you all on real quick so you can uh, play some more music for your listeners is we really have to understand when it comes to the Democratic primary that's going to be happening towards the end of May, that even if a regular, you know, uh, a normal Democrat has 100 percent of the Democratic vote in Arkansas, if they have every single Democratic voter, if they don't have any other voters, they're going to lose in the general there's no question about it. There's more Republicans, there's more independents in Arkansas than there are Democrats. What we need to do is we need to make sure the person who's going against Senator John Bozeman next year has a diverse group of supporters, which is what I've been able to build. I have independent supporters. I have Green Party supporters, Democratic supporters. I even have Republican supporters. And I think that we are going to have the best chance to beat John Bozeman next year. So if you do want to make sure we flip this red Senate seat back blue, get out there and vote in the primary. If you're an independent or a Democrat or Republican or any registered voter in Arkansas, you can vote in the Democratic primary. So get out there, show some support and help us flip Arkansas blue in 22. All righty. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on here, Dan. Uh, it's um, I, I uh, you had a lot of interesting things to say, and and I think uh, I, I think our listeners definitely have some uh, in, really uh, yeah really interesting thoughts to mull over. Um, do you have anything else you want to say before uh, before I play this next song? Um, sure. I mean, my website it's danforarkansas.com. If you have any questions to me personally. You can go to danforarkansas.com, click contact. My phone number's on there. My email's on there. I answer all my own social uh, media messages. Just reach out and let me know what you think. I'm always here to listen. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dan. Thank you, Ethan. You have a good morning. Yeah, you too. All right, friends. So that was Dan Whitfield coming on the air uh, to talk about his, uh, his platform. Uh, up next, uh, I have an awesome, awesome track for y'all. It's called Would That Not Be Nice by Divine Fitz. One of my favorite songs from, uh, from the album, A Thing Called Divine Fitz. Uh, anyways, hope you enjoy this track, and I'll be right back to share with you some uh, more awesome tunes. Uh, stick around, friend. <laughs> 